This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. (laughs) What is this problem? I just thought of something stupid. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I thought thought of I almost almost went out and went, and I'm Dana Duncan. Just to see your reaction. And I thought, I better not. But then it just broke me up. I'm definitely keeping this. Okay. (laughs) And I'm Dana. (laughs) Tom, can't you just say it with Dana Duncan? (laughs) I think you just did. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our returning celebrity guest scorer and resident (laughs) Howard Hawks aficionado, my mother, Christine Duncan. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Even if uh, I'm not sure dad knows which show he's on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's all right. You need a little levity. Uh, Especially for tonight's movie. Tonight, for our 162nd episode, we discuss the 1938 screwball comedy, Bringing Up Baby, directed by Howard Hawks, screenplay by Dudley Nichols and Hagar Wilde, starring Catherine Hepburn as Susan Vance, Cary Grant as Dr. David Huxley, also known as Mr. Bone. Great name, buddy. Mae Robson as Elizabeth Carlton Random. Charles Ruggles as Major Horace Applegate, Walter Catlett as Constable Slocum, Barry Fitzgerald as Aloysius Gogarty, Fritz Feld as Dr. Fritz Lehman, Virginia Walker as Alice Swallow, George Irving as Alexander Peabody, Leona Roberts as Hannah Gogarty, Tala Burrell as Mrs. Lehman, and John Kelly as Elmer. Recognition for this movie? Based on Bringing Up Baby, the 1937 short story in Colliers by Haggard Wild, Bringing Up Baby released on February 16, 1938. Despite Bringing Up Baby's reputation as a flop, it was successful in some parts of the U.S. The film premiered in San Francisco, where it was a hit, and was also successful in Los Angeles, Portland, Denver, Cincinnati, and Washington, D.C., However, it was a financial disappointment in the Midwest, as well as most other cities in the country, including New York City. To RKO's chagrin, the film's premiere in New York in 1938 at Radio City Music Hall made only $70,000, and it was pulled after one week in favor of Jezebel with Betty Davis. Due to its perceived failure, Hawks was released early from his two-film contract with RKO, and Gunga Din was eventually directed by George Stevens. Hawks later said that the film had a great fault, and I learned an awful lot from that. There were no normal people in it. Everyone you met was a screwball, and since that time, I learned my lesson, and you don't intend ever again to make everybody crazy. The director went on to work with RKO on three films over the next decade. 
The popularity of Bringing Up Baby has increased since it was shown on television during the 1950s, and by the 1960s, film analysts, including the writers at Cahiers du Cinema in France, affirmed the film's quality. In a rebuttal of fellow New York Times critic Nugent's scathing review of the film at the time, A.O. Scott has said that you'll find yourself amazed at its freshness, its vigor, and its brilliant qualities undiminished after 65 years and likely to withstand repeated viewings. Are we sure that was A.O. Scott? That seemed awfully nice. Yeah, I would have a definite question as to whether he's ever been nice to anyone about a film. Leonard Moulton stated that it is now considered the definitive screwball comedy and one of the fastest, funniest films ever made. Grand performances by all. Bringing Up Baby has been adapted several times, including Man's Favorite Sport, What's Up Doc, the French film Une Femme ou Deux, I hope I got that right, and Who's That Girl? In 1990, the second year of the National Film Registry, Bringing Up Baby was selected for preservation. Entertainment Weekly voted the film 24th on its list of greatest films. In 2000, readers of Total Film magazine voted it the 47th greatest comedy film of all time. Premiere ranked Cary Grant's performance as Dr. David Huxley 68th on its list of 100 all-time greatest performances and ranked Susan Vance 21st on its list of 100 all-time greatest movie characters. The National Society of Film Critics also included Bringing Up Baby in their 100 Essential Films, considering it to be arguably the director's best film. The film was also recognized by the American Film Institute in the following lists. For 1998, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies at number 97. In 2000, AFI's 100 Years 100 Laughs at number 14. In 2002, AFI's 100 Years 100 Passions at number 51. In 2005, AFI's 100 Years 100 movie quotes, Dr. David Huxley, It isn't that I don't like you, Susan, because, after all, in moments of quiet, I'm strangely drawn towards you. But, well, there haven't been any quiet moments, was a nominated line. In 2007, for for AFI's 100 Years 100 movies, its 10th anniversary edition, it was voted number 88, And in 2008, for AFI's 10 Top 10 list, it was a nominated romantic comedy film. Bringing Up Baby currently holds a 95% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 91 score on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, I think that I was the only one, if I remember right, who had a prior relationship with this film. I had never seen the film before, actually, and I have seen a lot of Cary Grant films. And a lot of Catherine Hartburn films, too. Yes, and a lot of Catherine Hartburn films, too, yes. So this was a first for me. I remember watching it during the pandemic because it was one of the movies that was on the AFI list, like I mentioned, and I was trying to cross it off among a lot of other films. I've since gone on and completed all those and all the best picture films. I think most people have heard that over the course of doing this show. But I remember watching it with Sarah and being pleasantly surprised at how funny I thought it still was some, I guess it's 85 years later now. Yeah, I thought there were a lot of really good lines in this movie and a lot of repeatable lines, actually. So I was also pleasantly surprised at how the comedy translated so many years later. And the fast pacing really doesn't make it dull. 
Well, it makes Catherine Hepburn's character more than annoying, in my opinion. <laughs> Interesting. There's a hot take for you. <laughs> so what is this movie about? Well, in my opinion, um, I think it's about the professor, Dr. Huxley, played by Cary Grant, trying to get the $1 million fund for his museum. As you be, the beginning opens and he's got this big dinosaur and he's missing a few pieces and he needs the money to continue to preserve that. And so the whole premise is during the entire movie, they're trying to gain the favor of the guy with a million dollars to get the money. I think that's the entire plot. Well, unfortunately, when I ask what the movie's about, it's really not about the plot. I mean, anybody can restate what essentially happened in the movie. I'm always trying to look at what the potential of the subtext, the, the story that is underneath it. And really, I struggled with this, as you both know. I think the best I could say, because this isn't a film with a lot of subtext to it, it's very overt in a lot of its themes, if you could even say that, is a lot of our important relationships can come out of absolutely nowhere, and they manifest themselves in, in completely unexpected ways and unexpected people. When you said that, it reminded me of Dad's old saying, where there's, for every goose, there's a gander, and... um even though uh, Dr. Huxley in this movie had a different fiance that probably suited him much better, Catherine Hepburn's character didn't have her gander. So I guess it, it just goes to show that even if um, you're an annoying female, there's somebody out there willing to put up with you. <laughs> Am I supposed to comment now? <laughs> sure, go ahead. Okay. Well, anyway, I head down. It's a rom-com and discusses the strange way couples sometimes become a couple. I mean, there's a reason why on cruise ships and they do, you know, these game shows and such, they'll ask couples how they met. And the one who usually has the most bizarre story wins the prize. I think that's ultimately what this is about. It's just that everybody kind of has somebody they know that had some weird way they're they met their spouse or significant other. Not everybody had that bizarre circumstance, but people enjoy those stories. Well, not everybody can meet each other at a wedding or across a crowded room or, you know, in some <laughs> blind date. Sometimes it is the disappointment of uh, that one episode in the second season of How I Met Your Mother. Oh, I didn't tell you How I Met Your Mother? Great story. It was at a bar. <laughs> that was the whole story. Yes, at a wedding. I can I can uh, relate to that one. Or in a dance hall. A High dance hall? How yeah, old are you guys? No, dad's parents met in a dance hall. Yes. Okay. Waverly Beach. My dad's pickup line is, hey, do you want to go to a beer party? <laughs> I suppose that's better than a pants party. Yeah, well, the problem is, is that his mom was a teetotaler. So. <laughs> she said no. Then he said, well, do you want to go sit in my car? Uh, no, I'll stay on my side and you can stay on yours. <laughs> well, apparently I know where I got it. <laughs> Told you you're a lot like your grandfather's. 
Yeah, uncomfortably so. <laughs> anyway, so we already mentioned that this is the quintessential screwball comedy and might have coined the term what screwball comedy is. What do you think the characteristics of a screwball comedy is so we can better inform the audience? Do you want the analytical or the uh, the superficial? Just stuff it. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, boy. What a... What's in your craw today? All right, I'll take over here. A screwball comedy is where everybody in the film is a little more than odd. And so their characters become funny because of their oddness. And each character is so odd that they fall together in in a pattern of funniness. How's that? So in other words, it's the Duncan family reunion? Absolutely. I was just going to settle for Duncan family dinner conversation. Yeah, there too. Yeah. It depends on which part of the Duncan family you're talking about. It, it's a farce. And a farce is a comedy. Generally, it's considered physical humor, miscommunication, absurdity, preposterous situations. Okay. It's based on a 16th century play section or play type called a French farce, where characters come in and out of doors and they just miss each other and there's constant miscommunication. Technically, I think it borders the te- on slapstick, doesn't it? I mean, yes. The technically, if you were to say what a screwball comedy is, the best representation I can have, and even that's a, is older, is Three's Company. Because the entire premise of the show was somebody says something, somebody else misunderstands what's said, and they go off on wild tangents. And usually it involved John Ritter doing some sort of pratfall somewhere in the middle of the, of the show. Coming in the door. For some comedy relief. Or somebody says something, whether it's Mr. F- or Furley Don Knotts or Mr. Roper, um, whoever. They misunderstand, and that sets the entire half-hour comedy. That's what a farce is. That's the best way I can I can point it out in more modern day. My guess is is there's some uh, TV modern shows day. Out now You're that going I don't fifty know yards about. into the past to define modern day. Fifty yards. Fifty years. It's a, that was not fifty years ago. Three's Company. Yeah, no. that's the seventies. That was the eighties. No, eighties. All right, 40. <laughs> but still, I don't I don't watch a lot of network television now, so finding farce now, I guess to some extent, uh, Night Court, now the remake of Night Court, there's a certain level of farce because of some of the situations that occur there as well. I think you could you could find a little bit more relevant example, but to be fair, comedy is uh, se- seemingly dead at the moment. Or at least the notion of what comedy used to be. Well, I don't know. Uh, Only Murders has some of that same tone to it. Yes. But it's borrowing from performers who probably did it at the time that it was in its heyday, like Steve Martin. So I looked it up. Okay, so they say the Grand Budapest Hotel has also remnants of that same farce. Yes. Sure. Right? I could buy that. Shrinking would be technically a farce. Because of some of the absurdities and some of the misunderstandings and things that go and how people do things in tangents. There's a certain element of farce, farcical nature to that show as well. They say that married with children too, but I wouldn't know if that that's, I mean, 30 years ago too. So 
Fargo, Major League, 16 Candles, Caddyshack, Wedding Crashers. I mean, those are all part of the list that they consider farcical, but none of them are in the, you know, really in the 2000s. Erroneous. Erroneous on both counts. Oh, they said Anchorman. Where'd you get those clothes from? The toilet store? <laughs> I mean, there are some, but they're not as common. And some of the other ones I haven't seen. Or have you seen them and don't remember them? No, I have not seen them. One of the top ones on the list is a movie called Game Night, and I'm not familiar with that movie. Uh, we went to see it in the theater. No. Oh, yeah, yes, we, we did. did. Yes, we did. Yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Carell and uh, yeah. oh my yeah. god, really? You did yeah. it again on the air? Again on the air. <laughs> you can cut that out. Oh, I'm not cutting it out at this point. I think what I'm going to do is I'll have the abridged and the unabridged versions. And for anybody that really just has nothing better to do, they can just listen to the raw audio. <laughs> At least we're having fun. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yes. And we did go to see that in the theater. I remember. Yes, we did. 30 Rock is probably the closest to a modern French farce. Yes. All right. Let's get some background on this movie. Uh, Dad, you have our plot summary ready for us. I do. Bringing Up Baby is a delightful screwball comedy about David Huxley, Cary Grant, a paleontologist who is about to marry his prudish fiancée, Alice Swallow, Virginia Walker, and needs to secure a $1 million donation to complete his museum project. However, his plans take an unexpected turn when he meets the free-spirited and impulsive Susan Vance, Catherine Epburn, who repeatedly and accidentally introduces chaos into his life. After a series of misunderstandings and misadventures, Susan decides to court David, leading him to a hilarious and chaotic series of events that involve a golf course, a jailbreak, a missing bone, and mistaken identities. Along the way, David and Susan fall in love, but their differences threaten to keep them apart. Director Howard Hawks, masterful direction, and the outstanding chemistry between Grant and Hepburn make this film a timeless classic. Grant delivers a pitch-perfect performance as the uptight scientist who learns to loosen up and enjoy life, while Hepburn shines as the eccentric heiress who relentlessly pursues him. The film's fast-paced dialogue zany antics, and witty one-liners make for a joyful and entertaining ride that will leave you laughing out loud. Bringing Up Baby is a true gem of the golden age of Hollywood and a must-see for anyone who loves classic comedies. Thank you. Did you know? Christopher Reeve based his performance as Clark Kent in Superman and its three sequels on Cary Grant's character, David Huxley, from this film. Did you know? The scene in which Susan's dress is ripped was inspired by something that happened to Cary Grant. He was at the Roxy Theater one night, and his pants zipper was down when it caught on the back of a woman's dress. Grant impulsively followed her. When he told this story to Howard Hawks, Hawks loved it and put it into the film. Did you know? Catherine Hepburn had one very close call with the leopard. She was wearing a skirt that was lined with little metal pieces to make the skirt swing prettily. 
When Hepburn turned around abruptly, the leopard made a lunge for her back. Only the intervention of the trainer's whip saved Hepburn. The leopard was not allowed to roam around freely after that, and Hepburn was more careful around it from then on. Did you know? Howard Hawks modeled Cary Grant's character David on silent film comedian Harold Lloyd, even having Grant wear glasses like the comedian. Did you know? Though Catherine Hepburn never received royalties as an actress in the film, because she was a part investor, the film did provide a financial return for her, and still does for her estate. Did you know? This movie fared so badly at the box office that Howard Hawks was fired from his next production at RKO, and Catherine Hepburn brought out her contract to avoid being cast in the film Mother Carrie's Chickens. Coincidentally, Hepburn was labeled box office poison on the same day that her contract was dissolved. Also on that list were Joan Crawford, Greta Garbo, and Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> yeah. And with that, we will take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the 1948 western Red River, also directed by Howard Hawks, screenplay by Borden Chase and Charles Schnee, music by Dimitri Tiomkin, starring John Wayne, Walter Brennan, and Montgomery Clift. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. That moves us to Best Performance. Dad, who did you have down? Cary Grant. I think he had to have the most subtlety in the entire film. At times, I don't know how he could keep a straight face with what was going on around him. Yeah, you wonder how many takes they had to do. Yeah, he had to be proper and yet react to all the silliness and then participate in it to some extent. I just thought his performance was great. But, you know, I... I don't. I think it was right after this he did Gunga Din, and I thought that uh, performance was excellent too. It was almost the same type of. I don't know. I guess it's a, an ability to be silly without without looking silly. It sounds like qualities of a pretty good straight man. But he could be funny when he needed to be. But it was usually in the context of the lines coming out or the action done by somebody you don't expect to be funny or silly. Well, no, his character had such a dry sense of humor or pointed statements that fit his character that were funny. And that's how he was funny. It wasn't because he was ha-ha funny. Yeah. Mom, who did you have? I have Katherine Hepburn. I think it took a lot of talent to talk that fast for that many scenes. <laughs> she would just talk circles around everybody. And it got to the point, I think, in some of the film that it was really hard to follow her because she was just talking so fast and in circles. So I think you really had to be paying attention to what she was saying. And um, just to have such a character that's, like I said earlier, so annoying and spoke so fast and had some sort of a, a logic that was kind of unique to herself that nobody else really understood. So um, I, I think she did a really great job with this character in making it so annoying that she was endearing. I didn't have a feel that she talked too fast, but then again, I've had a lot of practice with the women in my family. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. 
it's a question of whether it's 1.25 or 1.5 speed. <laughs> no, I had her as my best secondary performance. A lot of what you mentioned would go into my review as well. I think there's one quality that you didn't mention that I'll, I'll kind of focus on here for a second. She seemed kind of flighty and fanciful, but she also had an intentionality for her character. And given that we know how good of an actress that she could be, she's still the most decorated actress of all time by the Oscars. To see somebody kind of in this silliness, in, in an element that would require a lot more concentration by lesser people. She seems to be able to naturally gravitate into this and create a character that, as you keep saying, is annoying. I, I don't necessarily agree, but is clearly her own. I don't think this is a repeatable character across multiple films or that m multiple people could necessarily play. I think this is something that she distinctly had to do and created the character as a result of it. Well, I think she's a really strong woman or was a really strong woman in her own right. And I think that she puts that into this character too, that even though she is flighty and whatever, she has a strong will and she's going to, she's going to prevail no matter what. And she doesn't know, or it doesn't make any difference what's in her way. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of agency to her character that is unique for this era in film. I don't remember a lot of other female leads that could basically say they wanted something and then go get it, and you were rooting for them in a way from this era. It was usually at the whim of the men. It's reversed a lot of that trope in the last, I would say, 30, 40 years of comedy, where it seems like the men are usually dolts and the women are usually the stronger of the two characters. Maybe that's why this has translated so well across time. But at this point in time, you're coming from the Rhett Butler school of things, although this is a year before Rhett Butler. But regardless, you're still getting that type of our archetype of character where the, the man is always in control. And we see that in one of their next movies together, The Philadelphia Story, where Cary Grant's kind of always got the upper hand and she's kind of the floozy that doesn't really understand what's going on and has to kind of be brought along as things go. And eventually she winds up in his arms because of his great master plan. It's the reverse of that in this movie. For me, best performance, though, I went with director Howard Hawks. Partly because of the, the tone and the establishment of the line reading, the quick cuts, the screwball nature of everybody that was involved. I just think that that's the number one takeaway for me when I think about this film is just how quickly paced it is and how much the comedy is influenced by that pace. And that's only done through the masterful hand of somebody who clearly had a vision for what they wanted out of this movie. I had Hawks as my secondary performance for some of the same reasons, but when the comments were made that everybody in this film was screwy, no, not everybody in this film was screwy. There were several people that were not, but they were put in unusual circumstances so that their normal behavior became screwy. 
I, I would guess that the constable or the police officer, police chief in this would normally not be considered screwy, but when you put all these screwballs around him, um, he just ends up being put in a position he's not used to and totters off center. And uh, the same with uh, it, the, the ant. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say the fiance was extremely serious in nature as well, but even then it went to almost an extreme. If you're looking for another serious character that kind of just parachutes in, in a way, I would say Mr. Peabody. Most of the action is with him off of screen. Yeah. Best secondary for you, mom. I have, um, Carrie Grant. Um, I think, too, it took a lot for him to be completely straight when Catherine Hepburn was, like I said, talking in circles around him and saying funny things. And and he seemed to really keep it together and then deliver some really dry one liners that you had to sit back and kind of chuckle about. So um, I have I have him as my secondary performance. I have him as my most charismatic just because I think there's a reason he was one of the most versatile leading people for the better part of 30 years. He just could win you over with his being on screen. I, I really, there's, there's an ineffable quality that he seemingly had that he was placed in doing movies and that was where he was supposed to be. I would compare him to the modern day George Clooney in that way. I mean, you just, he just has to appear and there's just something suave going on in the you know film and everybody's enthralled with what's happening. So be glad we're not doing video for this because the weird <laughs> shoulder movements that you just had. <laughs> I don't think I've seen you do those shoulder movements for dad. <laughs> Not, not, not in any way. <laughs> That's not what I meant. I mean, the way that they carry themselves, you know, it's just. <laughs> I'm glad I'm entertaining for at least the two of you this evening. <laughs> yeah, wait till we put this on YouTube. <laughs> oh, there's a um, chance at some point we would live broadcast these. Yeah. I haven't given my most charismatic. It's Catherine Hepburn. I agree. Because, after all, she was box office poison. And I think this movie, she really did have a certain element of charm. Part of the problem that I think a lot of people had with her was that she came across as such a hard-boiled person or personality. She turned a lot of people off. And I think this kind of presented her in another light that people didn't necessarily expect. Let's move to best scene then. I have down par for the course, so the opening area on the golf course, dinner mishaps, which is the uh, ripped bottoms, let's say. Here's Baby, the introduction of the leopard, going to Connecticut, George buries a bone, leopard mating call, through the Woods, which is them trying to find Baby in the Woods. Leopard Mix-Up, when they let loose the, let's say, non-tame leopard. In Jail, and then back at the museum, the final scene. Any others that you think I should have included? Now, 
No, as long as in, in that part with the mating call, you, you have him getting up and trying to follow the dog during the entire dinner. I had that more during George Berry's A Bone, but... Yes. But it's not really the same because it happened that the mating call and, and the, the dinner party were all at the same time. Well, those two things kind of blended together, but given that the whole bearing of the bone was a therefore because of, I uh, would include it more with that than the mating call itself. Best scene, what do you have down? I have the dress rip where he's trying to cover her cover her up and trying to hide her backside on a continual basis up the stairs and around and I just think that's hysterical as he's trying to follow her. <laughs> and especially in the 1930s, you just didn't show any of that stuff, so it was at the right time. For me, it was the farmhouse, the initial going to Connecticut because it set the tone for the rest of the film. I mean, the scene with the negligee and Cary Grant coming out and meeting the aunt, and there was just so much in there that was a foreshadow of the rest of the film. I have the mating call. It's one of the very few things that, thinking back on the film, that I really remember as far as setups and the the farcical nature of things. And obviously that, you know, you have a mating call from a human going to an actual leopard and the uh, comedy of that. So I think that one, as far as the setup and the joke and everything that had to go into the scene, I'd probably have that. Favorite scene, I'd go with George Berry as a bone. If you're really looking for the French farce in this movie, it's him walking in one door and then George walking in another and back and forth during the dinner and them trying to talk to him, but he's really not interested because he's just following George. And then he's talking to him about big game hunting, which he has no clue about. <laughs> well, for me, it's the golf course because I can relate. There have been many times I have been doing something that was fairly straight and innocuous. And I've had people who completely distort what's going on and you can't make them understand they have their own vision of what's occurring and how frustrating it can be that they can't seem to grasp the reality of the situation. So I just related to that. So been there. Most indelible moment. The only thing that I could really remember from watching this film, I think about three years ago, was the collapse of the Brontosaurus at the end of the film. For whatever reason, that was like the one thing that really resonated with me is just that kind of like final parting shot where his life's work seems to have gone up in smoke, but it doesn't matter. Mine was Cary Grant in the negligee and jumping up in the air and saying, I've gone gay. I mean, there was an entire section, whole articles online as to whether, because that was an ad lib, whether it was just gay as in happy, the common meaning or if Cary Grant, who was rumored to either be gay or bisexual in Hollywood, was just making a joke more or less about himself. And uh, I just, to me, that's always going to be an indelible moment. I'm always going to remember that little scene. 
And for me, I think it's at the end when they're in jail and he rescues her by fighting off the terrible leopard, you know, holding up the chair and getting everybody, getting the leopard into the jail and culmination of the story and him being the ultimate hero. All right. Well, that'll bring us to our second break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to ronnieduncanstudios.com slash podcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 152 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Jerry Springer, 79, British-born American television host. The Jerry Springer Show, America's Got Talent. He was a politician as well as a former mayor of Cincinnati. I, I will add that Jerry Springer had kind of a unique reputation, but uh, my uh, business consultant for my law office one of his closest friends was Jerry Springer. And he used to tell me that if you ever met Jerry Springer, he was the sweetest, kindest man you'd ever want to meet. And that if you ask him uh, about his show and he'd tell you, don't watch that garbage. But as long as they're going to pay me $12 million a year, I'll do it. So gave a lot of money to political causes and charitable organizations. Rob Faber, 90, American actor, was in the movie The Exorcist. He also did TV credits, including Kojak, The Edge of the Night, Law and Order, Third Watch, and Hope and Faith. Harry Belafonte, 96, American Hall of Fame musician, best known for the Banana Boat song and Jump in the Line. He was an actor, Odds Against Tomorrow, and was a well-known civil rights activist. He was also an Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Award winner. And so we remember these here for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best funniest lines. I will start. David Huxley. Now it isn't that I don't like you, Susan, because, after all, in moments of quiet, I'm strangely drawn towards you. But, well... There haven't been any moments of quiet. Mrs. Random. Well, who are you? David Huxley. I don't know. I'm not quite myself today. Mrs. Random. Well, you look perfectly idiotic in those clothes. If I were engaged to you, I wouldn't mind waiting forever. David. You don't understand. This is my car. Susan. You mean this is your car? Your golf ball? Your car? Is there anything in this world that doesn't belong to you? Yes, thank heaven, you. Susan, I've just had a bad day, that's all. David, David, that's a masterpiece of understatement. David, privately, I like to think I have some dignity. David, the only way you'll ever get me to follow another of your suggestions is to hold a bright object in front of my eyes and twirl it. Susan, He's three years old, gentle as a kitten, and likes dogs. 
I wonder whether Mark means that he eats dogs or is fond of them. I'm out. Anybody else? Susan, you're angry, aren't you? David, yes, I am. Hmm. The love impulse in man frequently reveals itself in terms of conflict. David, but Susan, you can't climb in a man's bedroom window. Susan, I know it's on the second floor. I'm out. All right. We'll move to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Since uh, you have apparently had difficulty with your scoring, Mom, I'll let Dad have the choice whether he wants me to go or himself. I'll do it. This is a film that I don't know if there's a lot of people in today's culture that still remember it or think about it. It had some legs again in the 50s and 60s. It's not something that's on everybody's radar. So the public, I went with a three. I think those people that are familiar with it, love it or like it or know a lot about it or watch it on a regular basis. So is that the audience side? Yes. Okay. That's public audience. And industry has put this into some greater level of esteem, ranking it in the top hundred, considering it one of the great screwball comedies, one of Howard Hawks' best films. So I actually went with a 3.5 for the industry because of some of those characteristics. So it's a 6.5 total. Well, I didn't divide my score. So when I looked at this and I looked at its relatability and and how it would be looked at in the past versus now, I actually think Catherine Hepburn's character was quite a feminist. And I think that her strong personality and her drive as a, as a female character probably relates well with today's modern women. So for 1938, it was quite progressive. So I think it's, like I said, relatable. And I think that her, her character and how she goes about capturing Cary Grant um, in the first place, I, I gave it a six total. So Except those are really more characteristics of the classicness category. No, oh, I suppose so. I mean, usually when I'm doing a legacy score, I'm trying to focus on the reception within either the industry or the audience portion of things and what the name recognition is, what the stars are, what do people know and associate with the film. And I agree with you, Dad, on the audience portion of things because... This isn't a film with a lot of name recognition, but its principal characters or principal players do have name recognition. Cary Grant still holds a certain sway with the population, at least the American public, just at least to the average person. I I don't think anybody under 30 necessarily is going to know who he is. But, you know, even in my generation, there's still a few people that understand roughly who he is because he was in a lot of important films for a 30-year stretch. As far as Catherine Hepburn, probably one of the most important, if not the most important actress of the, I would say, first half of Hollywood era. And then you've got Howard Hawks, which I think he's at least probably in the running for a top 50 director of all time, and one of the people who cemented the early portion of Hollywood. Now, does everybody generally know all of those people? 
other than like historians and enthusiasts and that sort of thing? No, not necessarily. And do they know this movie? No, probably not. Given the fact that this was a film I kind of had to go out of my way to see, and it was not something that just came up naturally, I thought that the only way that this was kind of kept alive was being celebrated on some of these historical film lists, being in the National Film Registry, some of these things that are celebrated more by the industry. So I just kind of went for a down-the-middle 2.5 for the audience portion of it because it just doesn't hold the same sway, but I think you could get people to watch it based on who was involved, although it's a little harder for some people to watch old black-and-white films, but I understand that regardless. And the industry has kind of kept it alive, but it's not like one of the more celebrated films of any of these people, so I only went with a 4 on that for also a 6.5. Um, what was yours? And a six. Go ahead. Did you need help with the math? <laughs> Would you like to help with the math? No, I just asked if you needed it. Well, as you know, every week I always pull up a calculator for this exact type of thing. But if you'd ever actually like to help with the math, because it seems like you're always offering, but, you know. Yeah, but Dad's not good at math. He always mixes up his numbers. <laughs> so he would be the last person I would ask to help with math. Well, I I have a numerical dyslexia. Yes, I know. So, so his asking you that question. So just, so just laugh at the people oh, with a no, disability. No, no, no. But just him asking you that question when, yeah. Every week. Every week. 6.33 is the average between the three of us. Impact significance. Boy, this is a harder one because I have to try and place it somewhat in context of other films that we've had somewhere near the bottom for this. I'll only give it a two for the industry on the backing that two pretty significant players got out of their contracts with RKO, Hepburn and Hawks. And to become free agents right around the time that I think they really started to ascend is a little bit significant because of all the other choices that they could make at that point and then what they went on to do with their careers. As far as the audience reception at the time, I know that because it's it's kind of a flop, more or less, I'm not sure where to put this one. Historically, context-wise, I mean, it received absolutely no awards, no attention. It was not a well-received film. The critics were meh, mixed I at the time. About- if part of it had to do with the history at the time, you know, Hitler and all of the World War II stuff was all going on over in Europe. Things were pretty serious. People didn't have, um, you know, they just come out of the Great Depression. People didn't have stuff. They were giving up things in order. And then that along comes this comedy. And it might have just been too much for the seriousness of the time. I don't know. Well, I'm trying to think of comparables. Because I think 1938 is the year that You Can't Take It With You went and won Best Picture for Capra and James Stewart. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a a bit of a nostalgia play, but not nearly to the level of this. I think this was a little too whimsical. But this is also an era where Wizard of Oz, while it got a lot of awards attention the following year, was more or less forgotten for 15 years before it finally caught on. So... There were a lot of films in this time and place, Citizen Kane, that didn't really make their mark until 20, 30 years later. 
And I think a lot of it had to do with the war and every all the fallout from that. People didn't have money to go to the movies, so things weren't being seen. I think a lot of it has to do with it was ahead of its time. And that's very possible. I'm going to go for a 0.5, though, for the audience, which is probably one of the lowest I've ever given on it. But uh, that puts me at a 2.5. And I made a lot of my comments already, and I had a 4 for the category. Industry, I, I went with a 2. And by the way, do you know who basically was running RKO Studios and would have made the decision to release them from their contracts? No. The wealthiest man in the world at that time, Joseph P. Kennedy. K and RKO was for Kennedy. And for the public, I went with a one. The fact that it did have some uh, popularity in certain regions and cities led me to think a little more of it than just a, a complete less than a one. But I couldn't go any more because of the lack of popularity overall. So that's a 3.17 average between the three of us. Novelty, I'm going to pick on you, Ma. I actually had an eight for novelty. I think with a strong female character, the farcical nature of the film, the fast pace of the film, the Clark Kent-esque Dr. You know, Huxley, um, I think that you know him being a scientist... And her being an heiress, putting those two together um, were a little bit remarkable. So um, I just thought that it was kind of fresh, and especially for the 1930s. And so I gave it an eight. There were a lot of screwball comedies in the 30s. Not to the extent this was. So I can't give it a lot of higher marks for novelty. I also have to question, because even though I agree with with Chris, that there's a strong female character and some great performances and the speed and pace of the film was was better than anything that had been done before. Cary Grant's character was not very far off from some of the characters he started out playing. He got his start playing in films opposite Mae West. And in fact, the line... Uh, why don't you come up and see me sometime, was said to Cary Grant, I believe. And so he was playing that guy who constantly was befuddled because he didn't understand what was going on. It's A lot of times it's somewhat the same basic character. So it's not really a stretch for what he's done. I want the 5.5 for novelty for those reasons. I can't go any or go much higher than that because of it. So Hawks was known for doing this type of screwball comedy at the time. We've already talked about another one of his in uh, His Girl Friday. He had a sensibility for how to structure these movies. And given that I don't think this was his first one, it's just his most, let's say, quintessential of this type. It kind of leads me to believe that this is kind of down the middle five but I'll give it a bump up for being kind of the screwball comedy of his screwball comedies, and I'll go with a six. So that's a 6.5 average between the three of us. Classicness, I'll let you lead off, Bob. Other than the fact that there was the tr very traditional at the time, you know, man saves gr or girl type of situation at the end, 
and you kind of foresaw how it was going to ultimately end. Strong female lead, strong characters in general, um, kind of flips the way films were being done at that time to make the woman the pursuer. So I gave it a little bump up there. So I went with a 7.5 because I think it's a little more classic, but there's a lot of things in it that don't necessarily age the best. I mean, the negligee and some of that stuff is kind of very dated. And uh, man-woman relationship is a little um, dated as well. I'm not sure I would necessarily agree with you on those last couple of points, but one of the big parts of the movie hinges on a leopard being sent back from the Amazon, which would not be possible nowadays. That was one of the few sticking points I guess I had with this. Overall, though, like many of these era of Hawks films, these are kind of timeless movies and usually carry fairly good heart and humor. And I already made my points before that you have a female character with a lot of agency that flips the genre a little bit on its head by taking the lead in a lot of this and the man being much more subservient even to both his fiance and to Hepburn's character. So I'm going to go with an 8.5. Well, and I had a lot of the same comments earlier when we were talking about legacy. And um, so I don't think I need to reiterate what the two of you have said either. So I have a seven. I'll actually, based on what some of the comments you made, Tom, I'll actually go to an eight. Okay. I'm glad you did that before I made my calculations. No, I just wanted you to do it twice. So that's a 7.83 average between the three of us. Rewatchability, I'm just going to go for a pretty perfunctory seven. It's a good movie. It's something I could see every couple of years and not have a problem with. It's still somewhat funny, although I thought it strange that I, it seemed the other night I was the only one laughing at the film. But, you know, I I enjoyed this, and I'm surprised still at how well it holds up for being an 85-year film. That's primarily a comedy. So I'll go with a seven. I had a five. I love old movies, and I would see this again, but I'm not in a big hurry to go back and, and rewatch this film. Um like I said, for whatever reason, Catherine Hepburn's character sort of rubbed me the wrong way. And I found that it was almost like nails on a chalkboard when she started talking. So I think um, I think five for me. Certain characters hit a little too close to home. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You better be careful. <laughs> going to poison my oatmeal. <laughs> well, I am cooking your food currently, so be careful. Mom, the meatloaf. <laughs> Rewatchability, I had a 7.5. I'll rewatch it again. I'm not going to go out of my way to rewatch it, but if it's on, I'll sit and watch it again for a bit. I may recommend it to somebody to, to watch because it is kind of fun once in a while to see. So that's a 6.5 average between the three of us. Audience score, we had an 87% for Google users and an 89% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.8. .8. So to repeat the categories, we had a 6.33 average for Legacy, a 3.17 for Impact Significance, 
6.5 for novelty, 7.83 for classicness, a 6.5 for rewatchability, and an 8.8 for audience score, giving us a final total of 39.13. And putting it on our list, between Mr. Roberts and the Waterboy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Final questions or remaining questions. I still don't understand David's character arc in this movie, unless it is to always be at the whim of the woman whose affection he has. He seems to be basically trying to serve his fiance at the start and get the million dollars because it furthers his career. And the only thing he can do is worry about his career. But then Susan gets her hooks in him and he just becomes doting to her. And so he seems to be the most milk toast character as far as his relationship ability. He just kind of like goes and gravitates from one woman to the next based on what they want him to do. Well, it's kind of the simple-minded professor. It's the gatekeeper and the key master. <laughs> Let's just let that lie. Thank you, Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Any remaining questions for either of you? Well, I think we talked earlier today, Tom, when um, we were talking about the leopard being named Baby. I think a lot of people, when they hear the title of the film, think that, you know, it's the two of these bumbleheads bringing up some sort of a child. But in all actuality, the leopard's name was Baby. And the reason for that had to do with the song that they had to sing in order to calm the leopard down. And kind of whenever they sang this song, uh, the leopard became mush so to speak, in their hands and much more controllable. So so as you know, I'm a, a great historian on 1940s pop music, but it seems like a pretty conscious choice, though, to use that song and therefore that name for this character. Yeah, but we, okay, first of all, it's 30s, not 40s, and we never did mention the song that they had to sing, but yeah. All I'm saying is, is they could have made other choices. <laughs> they could have, yeah. And it's still a weird name for a leopard. But then again, it's no Spike or Rex. Or Randall. Randall. <laughs> I guess Hollywood always names their offspring some fairly odd names. Yes. There you go. Yes. Outside of that, no, I have no other questions. No remaining questions. All right. Well, thank you again for being on with us, Mom. You're going to be back a couple of times this year, I think even this coming month. I think so. I think the end of May I'm back again. Yes, for a revisit on a, a particular movie of um, maybe one of the great rewatchable movies of all time. Dad, any remaining thoughts for the week? I've been watching History of the World Part 2 as a uh, true Mel Brooks fan. It's holding its own. It's done in the style of Mel. A lot of comedians did the heavy work. Uh, other comedians, uh, Wanda Sykes. I'm trying to remember who else is in it. Kroll. Um, Nick. Nick Kroll. Uh, several of them have done pretty good jobs. So it's been entertaining. I'll say the least. And it does kind of bring back that nonsensical, whimsical nature 
of Mel Brooks and History of the World Part 1. So I've at least enjoyed it. And I would encourage anybody who's a Mel Brooks fan, it's worth watching. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. There's three times in a man's life when he has the right to yell at the moon, when he marries, when his children come, and and when he finishes a job he had to be crazy to start. Next week, we are discussing the 1948 Western Red River, also directed by Howard Hawks, screenplay by Borden Chase and Charles Schnee, music by Dimitri Tiomkin, starring John Wayne, Walter Brennan, and Montgomery Cliff. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 